Welcome to the Oak Shape Podcast Season 6 with your host, Dan the Fitness Man. Thank you for tuning in. We are excited to have you. This is the podcast that is dedicated to hard work, disciplined decisions, and year-round training in the pursuit of the best possible version of ourselves. We leverage elk hunting to create a pathway. We understand that time is finite and we cannot squander a second. We must be leaders at our home. We understand that faith is our number one priority. Then family, then fitness, then health, then wealth. Our year-round disciplined decisions help us leave a legacy for our family to follow. You will leave here motivated, inspired, and educated. We bring on a wide variety of guests subject matter experts so that you can tune in, get what you need to get, and continue on your journey. We are blessed to call ourselves Elk Hunters, Season 6. Here we go. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. Today's a big day for me. I met Dan Evans in 2005 or six. I can't remember exactly the year, but I've been picking his brain about elk hunting since then. He's the most successful elk hunter that I know, and I look up to him. He's also been in the archery industry forever. He's an incredible archer. He's an incredible elk hunter and businessman. He owns Option Archery. I've asked him to be on my podcast for six years. Finally, I had to hop in the truck, drive to his house, and sit him down. This is a long time coming, guys. Without further ado, this is Mr. Dan Evans, and you're listening to the Elk Shea Podcast. Okay, we are live in Montana, Thompson Falls, sitting next to Dan Evans on a podcast. What's up, Dan? Never thought it would happen, did you? Six years. <laughs> I know I reached out the first year because I'm like, oh, I know Dan Evans. I'll get him on the pod. And uh, that got shut down pretty fast. <laughs> but I'm persistent. I sandpapered him, wore him down. Thank you, Dan, for coming on today. It's been a fun day hanging out with you, by the way. Well, thanks for coming over. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't, it's been a while. Haven't been together, haven't gotten together for a long time. You're doing great, man. You look healthy. Family is healthy. Everyone's growing up fast. Business is doing well. Nothing's really changed, man. You love elk hunting still. Nothing's really changed. Nope, just older. Yeah. Yep. Things. Some things change. I've noticed when you get old. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I think for me, getting you on today, everyone wants to hear about elk stories and stuff. And guys, we'll get you some maybe. But I want to get to know the real Dan Evans. So, where were you born? Where did you? Where were you raised? Well, I was born in Ontario, Oregon, but my dad was a a pastor all the time, so I was a preacher's kid. So we moved quite a bit. So basically, even though I was born in Oregon, the first four years of my life, we lived in Alaska. And uh, I don't remember much of that, of course, since I was that age. But when, when I was four, we moved back down and lived down in, near a little tiny town near Boise, Idaho for a few years. And then I kind of consider my main growing up area as Salmon, Idaho. So that's, and that's where I know Jared Lyle from. Uh -huh. Now so it's starting to make sense. Jared and I went to grade school together in Salmon. And I lived there from the time I was seven until I was 12. 
Knowing how obnoxious, and, and I mean that in a complimentary way, Jared Lyle is as an adult male right now. Like, I give him a hard time. I'm like, I can't believe you're a CEO, the way you behave. And he's going to listen to this. So, Jared, I love you, buddy. But how crazy was Jared growing up in grade school? Well, it's funny because my family, nobody hunted in my family. And Jared's family hunted and trapped and everything. So I loved to be around that. So every chance I got, I would hang out at their place. And I can remember one little quick story about Jared. Of course, he grew up with that. And so his dad liked to trap. And I remember being over there one time and his dad wanted him to flesh out some hides. I think it was coyotes or something. And I was all about that. Oh, let's do it. And Jared, he wasn't too excited at all because, of course, been he had to do it. that yeah. all the time. That was a chore. But, yeah, no, we we came from kind of totally different family lifestyles. But Jared and I hit it off from the time we were young then. And then we kept in touch off and on after I moved away from there all the way through until I called him one day with when I was with Trophy Taker, the first few, after the first few years, I was at a point where I needed some help. And so I called him and I said, hey, would you like to come work with me? <laughs> so he worked with me for 14 years and we've uh, been great friends our whole life, basically. It's, it's, a, it's a great story when you can work with one of your best friends and come out of it being good friends at the end, too. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Salmon's beautiful. Um, how long did you stay in Salmon? Did you graduate high school there? And everything? No, I was only there till I was 12. And okay. then we moved to Elgin, Oregon, and I lived there for a few years, and then moved up to Ione, Washington. You lived in Ione? Yeah. Holy smokes. So we lived there for a few years. So like I said, we moved around a lot. My dad was a pastor. Really? Yeah, for till I was six. And then I think he was tired of us being dirt floor poor, and he's like, I'm going to get a real job. So I do remember a little bit of PK, pastor kid days, uh, but it's tough. Yeah, you know, you do have congregations and all the ins and outs of that, and people think maybe your parents are more strict than other parents, and they probably are, but all in all, it was good. It was good, but you didn't grow up in a hunting family. Do you no. think some of that time around Jared's family, like, planted a seed? Well, it's interesting that I was always interested in it. You know, I thought coming from the background I did, you wouldn't think I would maybe get an interest, but I loved shooting bows from the time I was a little kid. My uncle gave me my first bow. It was just a recurve. I still have it upstairs, actually. And I can remember, you know, going out behind the house and hiking around the fields and stuff with that bow. And years later, I went back to Salmon and I stopped in at a little sporting goods store that I used to go to. And the lady working there still remembered me. She says, oh, you're the kid that always would ride his bike in here and buy one arrow. <laughs> every, every time I'd saved enough money for one arrow, I'd head to town and get one. <laughs> really? That's great. I think uh, Salmon is one of my favorite areas. Just it's beautiful. I own Washington. It's probably not one of my favorite areas. But... Uh, it's a it's beautiful. Um, you're right there. What is that? The uh, what river runs through Ione there? Is it the Ponderay? The Ponderay yeah. up high. Yeah. Yeah, up high there, and it is still good country. I don't make it up there as much as I I'd like to, but Washington's fine. Well, your family upbringing, they nobody nobody hunted. 
Did, nobody ate meat, I would assume, in your family either. Nope. My family was vegetarian growing up. So my dad had eaten meat when younger in his younger years, but at some point, I think when he was late teens or early 20s, he quit eating meat. And my mom was a vegetarian from the time they met. So I grew up vegetarian. I didn't actually start eating meat until I was in high school. Really? Yeah. Did you have to like sneak eating meat or <laughs> is it? Well, no, not really. I mean, I went to boarding school for high school. And so I was gone from home most of the time after my sophomore year. I actually took homeschool the first year because I was I was into training horses at that time. Oh, really? Yeah. So I actually started, I actually got interested in horses to impress a girl that I liked and she was really into horses. So I started getting into horses for that reason. But then I... Did that work, by the way? No. I, <laughs> I ended up with the best girl for me though. So that worked out. Yeah. So, but no, but the horse thing kind of caught on to me for a while. And so I actually trained horses. That's how I earned money going through school. I did that for quite a few years and actually trained horses full time for a couple of years after college, even before okay. I, before I really kicked into anything else. That makes sense, man. You remind your story kind of reminds me of one of my, one of my best friends, his name's Josh and he's seventh day. His wife's a vegan or vegetarian and he basically is also but if he kills animals he's a hunter he'll eat that but no one else in the family will touch it and then his boy is in boarding school right now and he's like I think a freshman and it seems like maybe that's kind of like a general like parallel to you well that's the that's my dad was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor okay and that's yeah so that's what I've grown up in and that's why I went to boarding school went to one of the our church schools and so yeah there's and that's fairly common in our church. There's a lot of vegetarians, but there's a lot that aren't yeah. too. It's not a, it's not a church doctrine that you don't eat meat, mm -hmm. but but it is very prevalent. No, that makes sense. Well, when did you decide, I guess, to go after archery a little more serious? Like when did I mean? A recurve's one thing, but like at some point you got hooked into archery. Well, when I I lived in Elgin, Oregon. From the time I was 12 until I was 15. Mm -hmm. And my neighbor was kind of a backyard archery dealer. Back then there was quite a few of those. <laughs> and so he didn't have an archery shop, but he had some kind of a system set up. And he's the first one that ever took me bow hunting. So he had a, a son that was my age and they loaned me their my first compound really. It was a Martin Warthog. I don't know if you ever remember seeing those bows, but it had a wood handle. And so I borrowed that from him for a while, I think probably a year. And then I bought my first one through them. After I saved up money, I bought a Martin Tiger. But anyway, uh, that neighbor, his name was Dale Thamert, and he took me hunting for the first time. And I guess that's where my trophy hunting mentality started because I, I distinctly remember our first encounter where he actually called in a bull to me and how old are you at this point? Uh, that would have been, I would have just taken my hunter safety and stuff. So I was, I think I was 13 probably. I may, it may have been the last year when I was 14. So 13 or 14. And anyway, when he, he called, there was a spike 
and a raghorn five point. And the spike came right in to within 10 yards. But the whole time, all I could think about was that five point that was back there. And I just waited. Well, after it all blew up, I don't remember exactly what, how they spooked, but I remember him coming up to me and he goes, what's the deal? <laughs> you had that bull right there. And I'm like, yeah, but there was a five point back there. Who cares? He says. Yeah, dude, he, you deserved that. But that's, that's why you hunt. And that's why I hunt. We all hunt for different, different ways and different yeah. things. And obviously even right now, present, you and I, a bull you wouldn't even look twice at is definitely probably a bull I'm going to like maybe go after. It's just a different deal, but it's still cool that we like hunting. Yeah. You know? No, we all got to hunt for our own reasons. I don't think everybody, it never should be that we all fit in the same mold. It's mm. whatever you're after, you know, and I've hunted for the most part all these years the way I like to hunt. And the way I feel like I would hunt, whether anybody knew about it or not. Yeah. And that's that's worked well for me. But, I mean, I know it's easy to get caught up in letting other reasons enter into your equation. But that's the way I think it should be. Hunt the way you want to hunt. Don't worry about what else or what anybody else thinks. There is, that's interesting. I do think we'll come back to that a little bit as far as the bravado and the ego in hunting. Because... Uh, your resume is pretty deep on killing big bulls, but if you hung around, Dan, I mean, you're the last one. You're a very humble guy, I guess is my point of that, which I really respect. Anyone who's ever coming up to me and showing me something uninitiated on their phone, I just remember when iPhones came out and ATA shows like, look at this, 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 look at this. Like, I don't know. I'm so, like, that is, uh, I just have a bad taste in my mouth. But if there's someone like you where I got to, like, basically beg you to show me a picture and you're like, okay, that's the best. When they're like, you're just humble about it. You're modest. And, and I just, there's not enough of that right now. I didn't, I didn't really realize you were supposed to take hunting pictures to trade shows. Uh, but I, I did figure out that that, that was expected by a lot of people, I guess. But I used my hunting for promotion of my products. Cause obviously I got into that business. So I did take my hunting photos to trade shows Usually they were on my graphics and stuff, you know, yeah. but yeah, I don't, I, you know, I've never looked at it as a competition against other people. I think hunting is a, it's a personal thing. I mean, I have seen a lot of people kind of make it into a competition, it seems like, but boy, it'll humble you in a hurry. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you get, if you get caught up in it, I've put a lot of pressure on myself sometimes just by setting my standards a certain place or realizing that my standards are unrealistic for mm -hmm. where I'm hunting and it can get disappointing in a hurry, you know? So I don't know, for me, I try to keep the bottom line, bottom line as enjoying the hunt for what I like out of it. And it doesn't have to be what somebody else likes out of it. The reason why I do think you're um, arguably one of the best elk hunters I know is because you've averaged 50 days in the field for 30 years straight. Yeah, it's been a lot of days, and that's what people don't see, of course. I don't feel like I have a, a, a set of skills that are way better than everybody else. I feel like I've had a set of circumstances and combined with skills that has worked out well. I feel like there's a lot of people out there that if they had had the same 
opportunities I've had, well, they'd have a trophy room that looked probably better than mine, mm-hmm. you know? So I've been very blessed to be able to spend a lot of time and a lot of money over mm-hmm. the years. I mean, hunting, you know, my first, the first 10 years or so that I hunted, I didn't have hardly any extra money, but I spent a lot of time. And the last 20 years or so, I've had more money I could spend and I've still spent the time. So that's a big combination. But as you've seen too, you, you meet a lot of people because there's a lot of people that have big dreams from especially elk hunting. But I've, I've seen a lot of times over the years where there's good hunters and they get a lot of opportunities, but they don't put the effort in to learn to shoot well enough to capitalize on them. And then there's guys that are great shots. They put a lot of time into shooting, but they don't know how to hunt. They're, they don't get opportunities because they don't have a good shot. They don't have a, a good, you know, plan and system well if you can put both of those together and be a a fairly good shot and know your equipment and then if you can learn the hunting end of it i didn't have anybody teaching me so i had to spend a lot of time but you can also do it other ways you can pay pay to go with somebody that knows what they're doing you can go hunt with a good outfitter and that's going to shortcut your your learning curve for sure i never really did that so it I had to put that much time in. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of what you and I have always kind of had this bond is that I knew I knew you right in the middle of my elk hunting learning curve is when I first met you. And I was hunting country that you no longer had hunted. You had graduated, as I call it. <laughs> graduated. <laughs> uh, you just got smart. Uh, but I was hunting, you know, that thick, nasty, steep, deep North Idaho country and I was always picking your brain. Always. If you don't remember, I, I can remind. Yeah. I'm always hounding you for, I wouldn't say like, hey, where should I go? But like, how should I hunt these elk? Yeah. I need tactics. And you were always super encouraging um, and motivating to me. Just if I talk to you, just put that spark, that fire to keep after it and not give up. And I was like you. I had a lot of time in the field. Like, didn't have a lot of money. It, it was expensive to buy an out-of-state tag, but I had the time. I mean, I would quit jobs for elk hunting. Oh, yeah. And uh, that was the killer for me. But North Idaho was training grounds. And you've said the same thing earlier today. Like, that was your that was your training grounds. Yeah. What is it about the place? <clears throat> well, that was just where I was. That was the first place that I started finding elk, you know, because I of where I lived. I lived close by. So I remember the first time going on a little scouting trip back into northern Idaho and a friend of mine and I were way back in on these roads. We were pretty much lost. And <laughs> I spotted a great bull. I mean, one of the best bulls I had ever seen at that point. And I thought, man, I've got a hunt in here. Well, the next year I ended up getting an Idaho tag. And I had never killed a bull at that time. So this was 1992. And I went to find that same place, which, of course, this was way way pre-GPS days and stuff. So I went to find that same place, and I went to go up the road that we had gotten in there, and it was gated because it went through some timber company land, I guess. And so I spent a bunch of time trying to figure out how to get in there, and I ended up having to backpack back in to get to the area where I'd seen that bull. Long story short, I did end up killing a bull that year at about five or six steps in the alder brush. And when I walked up to that bull, I do remember, though, getting terribly rattled on that first 
that first bull, I still remember coming to full draw. Of course, I was shooting fingers with a compound. And when I came to full draw, I suddenly realized that I was anchored up here by my eye like a traditional shooter, which is not the way I was normally. Uh Normally I would anchor, you know, (laughs) but I realized it before I shot. At that distance, it may have worked anyway, but I, I still remember thinking, wow, this is really rattling me, you know? And then when I walked up to the bull after I killed him, I was by myself, and I remember thinking, man, this is what I like to do. Yep. <laughs> so he was a a little over 300-inch six-point, really nice, really nice bull, and I was hooked. So right it then. begins. So it began, yep. Yeah, you did catch some of that North Idaho heyday, hunted it for 10 years. Um, 10 years, yeah. When, along those 10 years, and I'm staring at your best Idaho bull right now, North Idaho bull, and yep. he's a dandy. When did you... When did you figure out how to make an archery rest? Well, I designed the first rest basically because I had had problems with other rests on the market. So mm-hmm. I took engineering in, in school, in college, but I took civil engineering. didn't have a lot to do with product design. But I was always interested in design. And I had a couple of arrow rests break on me at, inopportune times, not hunting, but actually just, just shooting. And I started looking at some of the rests that I had been using. And I thought, man, they're using awful small screws to hold important components together and things. And then I started playing with fall away type rests. Now I, I can't take credit for the fall away design because there had been fall away rests before, but nobody had ever built a good one. So there weren't any on the market currently when I, when I started working on my first design anyway. And I had seen, there was a couple other people, Glenn Berry, he was shooting a fall away rest. I think he was the first one I ever saw it on somebody's bow. And he was just taking a, a golden key TM hunter rest and reversing the, the spring so that it would pull up, you know, connected to the cable on the bow. So I thought, well, that's an interesting concept. So I started modifying rests and shooting. But then I I was thinking the same thing, the durability issues. So that's when I I actually just sat down. I had just gotten married. Karen and I got married in the spring of 97. And we bought a little house over by DeBorgia, Montana, just over the pass over here. And I started just drawing arrow rest ideas because I wanted to make a better... At first, I was going to just make a a kit to modify an existing rest on the market. Yep. But then I got to thinking, well, why should I? Why would I do that? Just make a kit for that rest. Let, let's just see if I can just build, make a whole rest. So anyway, long story short, I got it des- designed up, drawn up the way I thought it would work that winter. And I approached a machine shop and made a first prototype. If I remember right, I think I spent... Seven or eight hundred dollars to make this prototype, and it didn't work. Oh no! <laughs> but that's fine. It gave me a, an idea of what I was doing, and it wasn't long till I did have it where it worked. And Karen and I scraped together all the money we could, and we made two hundred arrow rests. You gambled. <clears throat> we did. You bet we, on yourself. Yeah, I want to say it cost us about six thousand dollars. I think. <laughs> and anyway, make long story short, I it took me most of two years to give away and sell those first 200 arrow rests. <laughs> but it started to catch on. You know, I was shooting 3D 
quite a bit and Karen was too and we were doing well and traveling to a lot of shoots and so we would show up and and do well and get to know people and people would notice this on my bow and so I'd start talking to them and they'd be like oh well man you know maybe we would try that or whatever so I did give away the biggest percentage of those first 200 but in two, 2000 was the first year that it was my full-time business. Wow. So what was your side hustle? I mean obviously the the rest was your side hustle but what were you doing for real work to bring in income? Well, after school, I actually worked for a little while at the Outdoor Sportsman. Josh Jones' dad, uh, Mark Jones, owned that in Spokane, and I worked there for a little while in between things. Um, and then when Karen and I got married and moved over to DeBorgia, we actually both were working a little bit for a phone company. And she was more than I was, and then her parents actually helped us be able to buy our first little house yeah. and it needed some serious work. And so then I ended up fixing up the house as kind of the project for the next little while. And that's when I designed the rest. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, this podcast is brought to you by hard work. That's right. I can't do it for you. Only you can do it for you. And that's what we are selling. I hope you're buying. We're also brought to you by Matthews archery, vortex optics, Onyx hunt, Numa outdoors, Kufaru International, MagView, Wilderness Athlete, Buck Knives USA, Crispy Hunting, Stealth Cam, Marsupial, Baku E-Bikes, Black Ovis. And we have some discount codes to help you save some loot. Eurooptic.com. For anything for Vortex, use the discount code ELK10 to save 10% off. If you're looking for swag, go to Vortex Wear, enter the discount code ELKSHAPE, and save 20%. Elite membership with OnX, enter the discount code ELKSHAPE, 20% off. Numa Outdoors, 20% off. The code is ELKSHAPE20. For Kufaru, it's ELKSHAPE15. Exclusions are shelters. MagView, discount code ELKSHAPE10% off. Wilderness Athlete, 20% off. Use the discount code ELKSHAPE23. For Stealth Cam Non-Sell, discount code ELKSHAPE20 will get you 20% off. And for Cellular, use the discount code ELKSHAPE10 to take 10% off. If you're in the market for a Baku e-bike, discount code ELKSHAPE will take $300 off. And where I shop for all my gear is blackobus.com. Enter the discount code ELKSHAPE for 10% off. Sheep Feet, the discount code is ELKSHAPE for 10% off. Fatty Meat Sticks, discount code ELKHUNTER for 10% off. Alien Holsters, discount code ELKSHAPE10 for 10% off. Crossover Symmetry, discount code ELKSHAPE for 20% off. And Canvas Cutter, finally, discount code ELKSHAPE will take 10% off. Back to the show. So I never, I didn't really have a, another full-time job in between. And then when we sold the first rest, I started getting big ideas and I thought, well, maybe, maybe I can make something go on this, you know? And then, so 2000 was the first year that it actually was a full-time where I actually made an income off of it. And then the business tripled year over year for the next three years in a row. And 2002 is when I hired Jared. You called Jared. Yeah. <laughs> and so. J-Dog, I need you. And you know what? Jared is really good at business. I like blown away at how smart he is. Oh yeah. When it comes to business. He's yeah, that was a good hire. Man, he's a sharp Well, guy. he and I he already knew some some things on the business end and then he and I learned some things together as we went through it for the year over the 14 years for sure. So it was quite the 14 year run. Yeah, 14 years and then in 2016 um I decided to finally take an offer from an investment group that there had been several of them knocking on the door. There was a lot of that going on in the archery industry at that time. 
So I finally decided to sell, and it worked out well for, for Jared, too, because at the same time, he got the offer to go to Hunt and Fool. Mm -hmm. And so it worked out well without me needing to, you know, I didn't want to leave him high and dry either. So it worked out great to have that timing yes. of when his job came. And then I think that's worked out well for him. Oh, too. yeah, he's killing it. He's got an awesome team. And so in 14 years of running... Um, a rest company you'd mentioned earlier today you were like you know just kind of a knuckle dragger in the beginning but really adapting and learning and understanding like studying the top line not the bottom line in the rest business and money was coming in and that's great and we're, and we're doing but man you had a ton of overhead you had spent a lot on marketing and, and r&d and yeah all the stuff and um that stuff's tough to learn through reading or a class in college it is. Um, Jared had taken more business stuff in school, so he did he did know more about the business end of things than I did, and I was learning as I went. But yeah, so we we learned a lot through <laughs> through the years. But yeah, the the basic thing I learned is the bottom line is what matters much more than the top line when it comes to running a business. And if you uh, it doesn't really matter how much money you have coming in. It's how much you have at the end mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> after all the expenses. <laughs> and I, I understand. I mean, it's I've experienced that. I'm kind of a – I'm not a very good business guy, but I've been self-employed for so long that um, I think I've gotten lucky, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm not really strategic when it comes to a business plan and all this stuff. But bottom lines are important. Um, but in your neck of the woods, in your space, like there's a lot of stressors too, like – in the archery industry, like somebody's always suing somebody about some patent. You copied me, copy that. Did you have any confrontations? Anybody coming after you? Did you have to go after anyone when it came to that that end of the business? Well, I did have some. There was a. I never have sued anybody over anything involved in the business, uh, but I've been sued. Um, you know, there was a big lawsuit there was a guy that thought that he had a patent that covered all fallaways, basically, which it didn't. Um, and I kind of blew it off at the first, you know, now, yeah. knowing now what I, he got a hold, the first time he got a hold of me, he said, Hey, I've got your arrow rest in, on my backup bow. And it works just like the one that I have a patent applied for on. Well, this was clear back in the early days when I also had a patent applied for at the same time. And so, He's like, I just want to see if you got yours protected, you know, whatever. And I said, yeah, I do. And that was it. And I'm thinking, he's got my rest on his backup bow. I mean, this guy, how serious is this guy, you know? Well, come to find out, as it got down a few years later, he actually found an attorney that took it on some kind of a contingency plan. I don't know what the deal was, but he filed suits against every, at that time, back up just a little bit when i first in, introduced it there weren't other rests on the market other fallaway rests right but i did not have a strong patent on it and like i said the fallaway concept had been done before so i couldn't patent the fallaway concept the way it worked i just patented my design and it was a very narrow patent so over the first few years when it started doing well other companies started building their version of course and so by the time this guy came and filed a lawsuit there was a lot of followways on the market so he didn't just sue me he sued all these other companies all but there's where i learned another lesson since all these other companies had built 
most of them had built copies of my rest. Not all of them. There was a few. QAD, I think, was one. They did their own thing. That was not a copy of my rest. But pretty much a bunch of the other ones were copies of my rest. And so I was kind of, I wasn't happy about that. So I did not want to join forces with all of them to fight this guy on this lawsuit. So I chose to fight it on my own, and they all joined forces, which was smart. Looking back at it, now I should have joined. Yeah. At the end of the lawsuit, I had spent a half a million dollars on representation. And I think they, as a group, had spent a little more than that, but it was split up 12 ways. Oh, man. So that was a lesson I learned. Um, That's a fun lesson. We did win. It basically got to the summary judgment stage, and they threw it out. Basically, they said that their patent was not valid. Was basically, It got to the point where they ran out of money anyway. and But I learned a big lesson on that, that it's better to join forces with somebody that you're not necessarily on the same page with sometimes to share expenses when it comes down to it. <laughs> yeah, man, that's tough. So how I've sold a couple of businesses, nothing like trophy taker. That's your baby, dude. Was it hard to sell or was it like a, was it like, tell me about the emotion involved in the sell. Like you had built this thing up from the ground. Well, it, it was a little different though in my case, because at first I was not going to sell it until it came up when we were already kind of in negotiations and it came up to the point and the company I worked with was actually very good to work with. I mean, they did everything they said they would do. I, after some of the stories I had heard in the industry, I was, I was paranoid. Yeah, I would be. You know, but they were actually good to work with. Um, but when we got down to the bottom line, they said, well, we'll, we'll pay this much. And I'm like, eh, I'm, I wouldn't, I'm not going to sell it for that much. But then they said, well, here's the deal. We're just basing things on sales, the last three years of sales. So you have some new products that you've just designed. I had just introduced the option site yep. and the Quivalizer. Well, the first year that I introduced those products, I didn't make any profit on them, really. Yeah. Um, so they're looking at the numbers, and they're saying, well, these products aren't making any money. These products are. You can keep the products that aren't making money if you want. And I said, oh, really? So you mean, so you, you're willing to pay the same amount and I keep the option site in the Quivalizer? And they said, yeah. I said, okay, now I'm interested. <laughs> That's so, yeah, no one knows that. That's so cool to hear. So, so it wasn't quite like giving up my whole baby, as you say. You know, yeah. I mean, the Trophy Taker brand was, of course, my brand it still is in my mind it's you with the bull as the logo but i kept the products i was most excited about at that time so you know the arrow rest i'd had for a long time and there wasn't a lot setting it apart from what was out there otherwise yeah because i mean you look around at the rest even a lot of them are still around now and they what do they look like well that's what they look like and that's fine. I mean, I guess they say flattery is the, how do they say it? It's the best uh, compliment or something. Anyway. Imitation. Oh, yeah. Imitation. Yeah, okay. Well, anyway. So because I was keeping my new designs that I had patents pending on and that I was really excited about, and then 
since that time, I actually had patents issued that are very strong patents on, on the option site. I've got a patent that covers removing pins from your view, basically. Yep. So, like, there's no other products on the market that work like that, that give you that option. And same thing on the Quivalizer. I've got a patent on basically combining a quiver with a stabilizer on the front of your bow like that. And so there's no other products like that on the market either. So that is where option archery started. So I didn't feel like I, it wasn't like I was jumping out of the whole market, you know? Yeah. And that's the truth. You weren't, you got to do the more exciting part. Well, yeah. I mean, I signed a non-compete when I sold, but the non-compete was only for arrow rests and broadheads which didn't limit, didn't limit me. And it had a sunset. So, you know, that's pretty exciting. And that thing expired recently. That's cool to hear. Let's talk (laughs) about option archery. Um, The Quivalizer, definitely, guys, check that out. Uh, Dan runs it. And um, we got a train in the house. But I would say that the Canyon Pounder is what I really wanted to kind of chat about a little bit and then obviously finish with some elk tactics. The you sent me this site a while ago and then I knew I wanted to, I knew it was going to be a candidate for me for elk hunting. I'd hunted with a two pin vertical last year. Loved the site picture. Kind of went from a fast eddy to uh, a black gold dual track. And I just really like that platform, but it does not bode well for elk hunting where elk decide to step out when they decide to step out right. and you could get busted ranging, adjusting, sliding, whatever already be at full draw they come in but you don't get the shot and they run out and stop at a certain distance that you ain't got a pen for i think you know that you've killed over 40 elk (laughs) over 20 25 bulls over 350 inches all all of them like public land self-guided the dude is like i said you're one of the best elk hunters i know it's not going to work for me so i knew i had to come back to my roots four or five pen and i talked to you and you're like dude I think you really need to look at this Canyon Pounder. And I was like, what did you call it? <laughs> and you're like, the Canyon Pounder. What a name. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Jared and I used to sit around and talk about ideas for product names and stuff. And, of course, we always – Jared, I'll turn my phone off. <laughs> oh, no. Keep it on. Or is that your phone? That's you. Or is that you? That's me. Okay. Um, let me silence it here. There we go. Anyway, we used to always get a kick out of throwing around ideas for names. And for some reason, I've always enjoyed names that can be taken wrong or can be had fun with, Yeah, which is fine. But, I mean, the big thing with the Canyon Pounder, obviously, it's more of a term used in long-range rifle. Yeah. Yeah. and this is probably a good place to say because I get messages all the time and comments on posts and stuff of people that think that I'm promoting long-range hunting, which is not true. I'm, I'm promoting long-range practicing, and that's what I believe in. I believe in practicing at twice the range or even more than Amen. twice the range of what you're going to hunt. 100%. Yeah. So... The Canyon Pounder is is for exactly how it sounds, for long bombs for practice. Yeah. Um, and there may be times where you need it for a follow-up shot in hunting too. But from a hunting point of view, that's where, you know, personal ethics need to govern 
govern what you're going to take on shots. You need to not take shots that you're not 100% confident in. And that need, there's a lot of variables that enter. So shooting at game at the ranges that we're practicing is not practical um, in pretty much any scenario. You know, I've done 25-something elk-shaped camps in the last five years. And I said this in my last podcast. I'm going to briefly just cover it because it applies to what you're saying. We have them tell us their effective range, like their maximum range that they're willing to shoot on an elk. And then when we first get to camp, we don't even know them. There's 30 to 50 of them. We're like, grab your bow, grab an arrow. I got a, I got it all printed out. I'm like, all right, Dan Evans, you said your, active, your maximum effective range was 75 yards. Step out to 75 and put one in the tin ring. Yeah. And they got to do it in front of me, Joel, all the instructors and 30 campers. And we make a half circle around them. I do it on purpose because I've bet... 10% actually hit what they thought was their effective range. And it's a stressful situation, right? Your yeah. perception is that, oh, everyone's watching. And, uh, man, so I do think a lot of people need to understand that if you want to extend your effective range, truly, you have to practice. I love shooting. Honestly, Dan, I like shooting as far as I can actually shoot. I've shot a target oh, yeah. at 300 yards on YouTube. But, I mean, 100-plus yeah. yard shots, 120-yard shots – I'm never going to take those on an animal, but yeah. that sure makes 60 seem like a chip shot, which is crazy, right? Yeah, no, I, that's exactly true. I mean, at any time we feel pressure. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? but after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. I always think, at least for myself, whenever I am feeling the pressure, really pressured, it cuts the effective distance in half at least. Shrinks it. Yeah, and I feel pressure just like anybody else does, you know. I mean, even hunting, when I'm in hunting situations, it's probably a good thing I'm the only one there usually because then otherwise everybody would know that I was shaking too, you know. But you have to learn to be able to control that and that 
I know you guys work on your in your camps and stuff, and with Joel Turner, Joel Turner on the executing the shot. So I find when I'm nervous, whether it's shooting in front of somebody or whether it's hunting, I shake, you know, a little bit. So, but I can still execute a clean shot, but I'm not going to be able to shoot as tight <laughs> if I'm yep. shaking. And then I've also noticed I tend to do that a little more as I've gotten older too. You know, it, I, I think there's a reason why they set the 50-year cutoff for the senior class. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do think the Canyon Pounder, like I'm going to give it a go. I have it on a bow that I can consider elk hunting. And it just makes a lot of sense. And if you guys listen to this podcast, we are making the dopest YouTube video. Clem over here is going to edit it. And this is Day in a Life with Dan. And it's we have, we have him break down every little thing on this site that he designed here in Montana. So be sure to, I'll leave a link in this to check out that video and see for yourself. It's pretty cool. But speaking of shaking, you said you had about a target panic. Yeah. And you were used to use handhelds. And now you've moved on. You still could use a handheld, but like you're like, I don't compete anymore. I'm going to use the release aid that I use hunting year round. But take us through how you conquered, not conquered, that's not the right word. How you mitigated that target panic? What year did it sneak up on you, man? Yeah, well, I started shooting 3D in the mid-90s. And the first year I went back to the IBO World Championships was 96. Pretty sure, if I remember right. Well, by 97, I had my target panic was starting to get the better of me enough. And for everybody that has fought with it, you know that you'll hit a point where pretty soon you realize that you're not in control anymore. And so it got to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't even get my finger on the trigger. So I'd have to, my finger would either be behind the trigger or I would try to, I would try to work myself through it. So I would lay my finger on the trigger, have my wife standing there hollering at me in my face, you know, trying to get things like I see Joel, Joel Turner doing. And anyway, I was really having problems, um, especially whenever I'd go to a shoot or whatever. And I was still doing well at the shoots, but I knew in my head it was catching up with me. And I was getting to the point where I was shooting when it wasn't before the pin. I was past shooting, basically. So I'd I'd have the pin going past and then punch it as it was going past what I wanted to hit. And I actually shot pretty well doing it for quite a while, but I knew it was catching me. So that winter, I thought, man, I've got to do something about this or I'm not going to have any fun shooting anymore at all. And I did a bunch of research. I, I watched a video that Randy Ulmer had out at that time. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was called. I don't, I don't even remember what it was called. But the video that I ended up buying that ended up being kind of like my Bible was called Secrets of the Shot by a guy named Lynn Cardinelli. And I know there's still some copies out and about, but it's a lot of the same stuff that I see. I've never come to one of Joel Turner's in-person um, sessions, but I've seen your videos and seen what he's doing. And he's he's doing a lot, of, a lot of the same things were in those principles. So I came away from that thinking, okay, what I need to do is completely retrain my brain. That's it. And so I took one whole winter, the winter of 97, 96, 97, and... I did not, I said, I'm not going to shoot, I'm not going to aim at anything the yep. whole winter. I'm just going to blind bill. And so I actually had a, a target in my bedroom at home, and every night after work, I would shoot, and I can't remember exactly, but I want to say I shot about 60 arrows a night, 
pretty much all winter. Dang. And I changed everything after watching that video. I changed to a handheld release. I actually ended up shooting it with a pinky finger activation. But either way, changing to a back tension. I mean, it wasn't a rotation back tension, but shooting with back tension. I'd never thought about that before. And got to the point by spring where I tried to ingrain in my mind that executing the shot correctly was the most important thing. Doesn't matter where the arrow hits. Just pretend anybody that's watching you shooting is not watching where the arrow hits. They're watching your execution. And That's a damn good, that is a great thought. It's easier said than done sure. at first and when you're having the problem. But that's, that's really what it comes down to if you can actually make yourself think it that way. Sure. So that's what I did. And then the next year, I actually shot the best I ever had once I finally got through that and started those next three years. I actually competed nationally. My wife and I both, we shot the whole IBO circuits. And in fact, my wife was the IBO national triple crown champion in 1999 in the women's open class. Wow. And I ended up second at the IBO world's that uh 98 and then by 2000 we were both shooting in the semi-pro class and then I, I shot pro at certain events but in those the ibo and some of the asa stuff that they were just starting back then but anyway after 2000 we kind of quit my business had taken off i was very busy working and i i wanted to keep hunting elk so i felt like i needed to choose between elk hunting time and tournament time because for those last three years of the 90s we were shooting 25 tournaments a summer and so that's we, a lot of archery man. yeah we were traveling we started shooting tournaments the last of january when they would start the first three d's around here and we would shoot all the way through august every weekend so i had to choose basically and we started having kids that year and I chose elk hunting. So I kept elk hunting, but I pretty much didn't go to tournaments after that, except for just once in a while, I'd show up at a local one. Yep. And then at that time, when talking about the releases, I decided just to switch back to what I was going to hunt with and shoot the release with the same, the same concept, you know, of the pulling through the shot. The way Joel, uh, describes it is basically how I think of it and how I shoot. I shoot an index finger up in the second knuckle. Yep. Think of my finger as a hook and think of a push-pull, basically pushing straight toward the target, pulling straight away from it, thinking of my hand sliding through the wrist, wrist strap and activating the trigger that yeah. way. Yeah. And it's I just love the way you shoot an index. Seriously. Uh, if you guys haven't Put more slow-mos of it on your Instagram. It's you got a really clean break. And I've had so many guys come through our camps with an index, which is fine. And it's just they don't understand what you're like they they need to watch what you're doing and slow-mo. Because it's the thing's dangling right there. You pulled yeah, it's it's awesome. Competing at archery is cool, but we really want to be just proficient elk hunters, which you are. Did you ever get the bug to hunt any other species? Why elk, Dan? Why so narrowly focused on elk? Well, I have hunted other things. Um, 
never put all, you know, very much emphasis on anything else. I did go to Jared and I went to Africa one year together and that was an experience, good experience. You know, that was in 2006. So shot, you know, a dozen animals or whatever over there. And then I've hunted, you know, I've hunted deer. I've killed a few mule deer. I've hunted whitetails, um, killed a few black bears, but I've just always been fascinated with elk hunting. And I, you know, it's funny, several years ago, somebody came into my trophy room back when I had all the bulls in one room. Yep. And they said, man, have you ever thought about hunting a Roosevelt elk? And I said, well, no, actually, I haven't ever hunted Roosevelt. And he goes, that's what you need. You need a little variety in here. <laughs> and I said, well, if I was worried about variety, then my my trophy room probably wouldn't look anything like this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because even the other animals I've shot, they never did make it into the trophy room. <laughs> I tell you, I'm with you. Elk's what does it for me. I don't even need to. It's my church. It's my reset. It's it's the time of year. It's everything that it, I mean. It's just it requires so much of you to do it proper as well. It's the motivation you can leverage all year. And you can leverage it in other your fitness, your nutrition. If you're overweight, you need to lose some weight, or maybe your job sucks and you don't have time off, or maybe you're poor and you don't make enough money. You need to hustle more. Right. You know, all these things could be leveraged because of elk, at least in my opinion. So I get you, Dan. Is what I'm saying. Well, and I got on the, on a schedule early on that just was my yearly routine. You know, and for so many years, oh by by the middle of August, I'd pack up and usually my whole family, when the girls were smaller, Karen homeschooled the girls and we'd pack up everybody and take off. A, well, from for the last 20 years, I've used a camp trailer. Before that, I did it the old fashioned way, you know, for the first, first several years, it was living under a tarp and that kind of things. But for the last quite a few years, it's packing up the camp trailer and usually have a whole string of hunts lined up and just take off. The last few years have been different. You know, the, the family's getting grown up and had some other things going on, so they can't go with me. And and so that's changed things a bit for sure. But what do they say? The one thing you can always count on is that nothing stays the same. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a fact. Well, if we have you on the podcast, we've been hurt. We have to get going soon, which is a damn shame. I could do this for hours with you, but I'm not going to forgive myself if I don't pick your brain about elk hunting a little bit. Um, and I have obviously for years, right? Like I've seriously <laughs> hounded you. I feel like I got to give you some credit too for a lot of my success is you've just shared pages out of your playbook, man. And I really appreciate it. And here's the good news. I'm still learning, man. And I know oh, you we are, all are too. Yeah. But um, let me ask you this. Out of the, I hate when people quantify stuff. I get asked, how many elk have you killed? I do know the answer, but I hate when people ask. <laughs> and I had to ask you today, but I did give you that warning. I was like, hey, man, I hate when people ask this, but like just for context, yeah, you've killed a lot of bolts with a bow. And how many of them have been called in versus they didn't know you were there? Ish. Well, not very many. I haven't called very many in. So the first... I didn't kill, I only hunted one state for the first five years after I killed my first bull. And so obviously I was hunting for a lot of days each, 
each year, but I wasn't branching out very, very far. And I was calling at that time. I was hunting in the North Idaho brush. Yeah, you kind of have to. And I did mostly calling then. But then after five years, so in 97, I started hunting multiple states and I was still calling. I want to say 2000, after about 2001, I didn't call much. And so for the last 20 years, I haven't called much at all. Do you even bring a bugle tube? Oh, yeah. To locate or whatever? Yeah, I'm not against calling. My theory on calling is pretty simple. I believe if you can convince an elk that you're an elk, then you have a chance of calling him. The problem is, as I started pretty much putting all my efforts into looking for the biggest or oldest bulls in an area, they also tended to be the smartest ones. Yep. And I started realizing that when I would try to call these bulls in, at least in the places I was hunting, sometimes if I catch them right on the right day, right time, you could call them in possibly. The problem is you don't know which day that is. And if you mess it up, you're probably not going to get another chance at that bull. Whereas I found, and I'm not going to take credit for all of this. I, I spent a lot of time trying to listen and read everything that different guys, you know, sometimes I'd find out that the guys I was reading, uh, I'd realize after following them for a while that maybe they didn't know as much as I thought they did. But some of the guys did. Randy Almer was one of them. Run um, silent, run deep. <laughs> so, yeah, and I'd listen to those guys, anything they'd write or anything they'd say, and I, I was fortunate enough to get to know some of these guys, and then I'd listen even more. But there's a lot of truth to that, and for me it has worked well to be able to hunt, especially when I spend 99% of my time just looking for a bull that I want to hunt. Then when I finally find him and I'm going to hunt that bull, I don't want him to know I'm hunting him. And so that's where staying out of the staying out of the close encounters until it's time to kill him has worked the best for me. And by calling, I give away my location usually. You know, I know some guys, there's some guys that have killed a lot of big bulls that have called a lot too, but not very many. In fact, if you think about guys that you know that call a lot, you can't think of any of them that have killed a lot of big bulls. I, I can't. I can only think of a few. And sometimes it enters into the equation where you're hunting, too, of course. Sure, certainly. So the train how, does dictate. Yeah. And how much pressure those elk have had. Yeah. You know, that's a big deal. I mean, but for me, anyway, I've had the best luck. And, of course, part of it, I'll admit, part of it is probably because I don't call. If I called all the time, I I would have probably had success, at least a percentage of the same amount of success. But because I haven't been calling, then there's no way of proving how much that would have, you know, what that percentage would have been. That makes sense. Well, I have to get to, like, I just got to get away takeaways here. I like the fact that you've snipered a lot of elk, meaning there was not a sense of urgency in the light of this bull you just called threatened he's coming to kill you you got to pull back and you have a window to shoot now like now versus bulls with his cows maybe he's bugling other satellite bulls or maybe he's scent checking or feeding and you're just sitting there arranging them getting ready to pull back and he's not moving much and you're 
it's a, it's more fun to take a shot on an animal like that that doesn't know you're there. That's in a relaxed position versus an intense, intense moment. Um, I think that's two different types of pressure. Yeah. I mean, that's I prefer to hunt them if they don't have any idea I'm there, you know, and that can, I mean, that can go both ways. It can be tough for sure, but I've, I've been fortunate to take bulls that I, when I locate a bull and then hunt that specific bull for, sometimes it's taken a long time. This bull, this mount right above me here, I hunted that bull for most of two weeks from the time I first found him and I lost him for a while but then relocated him and I came close. I actually missed him once. Um, and it was one of those over the years, I have had a few bulls that have violently jumped the string and he was one of them. Really? Yeah. And he spun when I shot, it wasn't a long shot. It was about, if I remember right, it was 41. And when I, he was looking at me though, when I, he caught me drawing. And so he snapped to attention looking at me and when I shot he spun so fast the arrow went right past him and I, I felt like I made a pretty good shot but I've had that happen a few times over the years where bulls have jumped out of the way either spinning or whatever and even if it's a fairly fast setup it's not like I was shooting a really slow it's not, like, not like you have a short draw length like me no like you're gonna kick out some speed I named him Lucky, though, after that because I missed him the first time I saw him. And then I had another run-in with him quite a few days later where I snuck in on him in his bed one morning. I found him bedded right at daylight in the morning, first light. And he was across a big canyon on a little sage flat in the middle of this timber. And I was able to sneak over there. I got up to 45 of him bedded. I figured that was the closest I could get, so I just waited for him. And when he started his rack, you know, his rack rocked like this, he started to get up. I drew my bow. And the way he was laying, I thought he was going to stand up broadside. Yep. Well, he didn't. He stood up, and as soon as he hit his feet, he turned with his butt straight to me. But I was already at full draw. And I always have a cow call or a reed yep. in my mouth. And so, but I didn't want him to know I was there. I know. What do you do? And so, and a cow called further off this way so he had turned his head looking toward her so i couldn't move because his head's you know perpendicular to me basically so his one eye's right toward me so i thought well he's gonna turn toward her yep but he didn't he just stood there and i was just steady on him and then i'm and then he didn't turn didn't turn didn't turn and finally i'm starting to shake you know and i thought oh. so i thought i've got to do something so i just cow called softly but instead of turning he just turns his head and oh, looks come back on, over lucky. over his butt and so then he's looking right at me and still not facing and now you're shaking even more yep so finally i had to let down and he thundered off but i found him again a couple days later and killed him that time <laughs> that's a great story man wow yeah sneaking in on bulls um what do you think's more um, conducive for your style? Mornings coming off of feeding situations. I mean, that bull was bedded at first light. That's rare. Usually yeah. elk are on their feet, and bulls are rounding up cows, and they're moving. You like getting them in transition there in the mornings more, or do you feel like just look looking back historically, is it those evenings when the winds are really dependent? You know, I've killed bulls all times of the day, um, and I, 
I haven't actually sat down and added up to see if it was more mornings, more evenings. Um, but I've killed quite a few on both, and I've killed quite a few in the middle, middle of the day. Of the day yeah. <clears throat> so I always plan on hunting both mornings and evenings. I don't always hunt the middle of the day. Um, it kind of depends. I I tend to, I like to take naps too. Yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of times I'll tend to take a nap right in the middle of the day. But it it depends on the scenario. I've also had pretty good luck with if I dog a bull, if he's with a herd of cows, and if I follow him in the morning, but I don't get something done on him, then once they bed down for the middle of the day, I have found a lot of times that bulls normally around the middle part of the day will get up um, and check the cows for a little bit. They'll get up, stretch, and, and they'll bugle a few times while they're going around their cows. So I've had pretty good luck with that you know, scenario where I'll follow them, try to get in within striking distance, and then sit back. Now, of course, you got to play with the wind usually switches the middle of the morning, so you got to keep all that in mind. But I've killed a few bulls that way and then wait for them to get up and check their cows and try to be within striking distance when they do that so I can then zero in on right where they're at. Yep. And then if they come in, come around their cows. But as far as morning and evening, I like both. Mornings, if... If they're heated up, if the action is heated up, then I guess I probably prefer mornings because you're not going to run out of light. You Amen know. to that. Yeah. <laughs> but usually they're going to quiet down at some point. So. Yeah, the evenings, I do like the evenings where a lot of guys will go back to their truck and hike, hike out early or hunt yep. their way back. I do feel like if you're really hungry to get that out killed, staying with them, even though if you're five miles from your truck and waiting for those last 20 minutes of daylight, guards can get dropped, thermals can become predictable, swirling depreciates, and you can make moves. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, it, it may sound oversimplified, but when I think about it, what it takes to kill a bull or a target bull, it all boils down to, you got to find him. You got to get within range. You got to be able to make the shot. Well, that sounds really simple, but so it starts with, for me anyway, when I'm looking for hunting bigger bulls, a lot of times people wonder about that. You've got to hunt where there are bulls that size. So not everywhere is going to have a 350 bull or a 380 bull. So you're being totally unrealistic if you're holding out for one and there's none in that area. Yeah. So being in the right areas, of course, is a is a big thing. But as far as the tactics go, probably one of the things I've found's helped me the most is avoiding the iron elk syndrome, I guess is what, what I've always called it, where I've had that happen to me, especially early on, where you maybe have a run-in with a bull and you don't get a shot or whatever, and you feel totally defeated and you're like ah that's that was my chance on that bull it's over he's spooked it's done yep and you give up you go to a different area well he's still alive and he's still there somewhere as long as he's alive he can be killed yeah <laughs> that's the attitude i like to hear so it is true that you can spook him out of the country sometimes but i've killed bulls a lot of my best bulls i've killed after multiple close calls. 
Yeah. You know, and, and I'm assuming you're not getting busted on these close calls. Sometimes I am. Really? And that's where I do feel like the calling, not calling, has helped. Because a lot of the places I'm hunting, there's there are some other people, you know, so there's some people interaction with these elk, whether it's cowboys running cattle in the area or whether it's hikers or other hunters. And so that's something I've always felt like if I'm not calling to them and I bump into them or they bump into me or they smell me or something, but yet they also are smelling other people at times around there, it doesn't necessarily seem to spook them as bad as if they, and maybe I give them too much credit thinking this, but if they come in and I don't get a shot and I'm calling and they're like, Oh, wait a second now. They don't say- <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Dude. So your your elk skills are incredible. Your archer skills are incredible. Your drive, you know, Clem behind the lens. Him and I have been in the truck a few times without you in it. And we're just honestly, Dan, we're just like, and I've known you for so long. So don't get embarrassed here, but I'm just like, I'm so proud of how you've set up your life. You you're a simple guy. You're off the grid. You show up to work. You bust your ass, and you love elk hunting. I don't know, man. You've set it up. You're doing some real estate. You're building an archery shop. You're designing cool stuff, and you're the most humble guy I know, man. Don't ever change that. What are what is getting you excited nowadays? What what are you jumping out of bed, motivated to conquer? Well, I have to admit that motivation becomes. Uh, harder as you get older at least for me it's a little more elusive i'm not as i'm not as motivated as i used to be you know not on the same things for sure sure um there's a lot of things that come along with life you know that you all of us have things we deal with you know and you whether it's stresses from this or that or family problems health issues we've had some health issues one of my daughters you know and uh you know, those kinds of things make you realize where your priorities are and where they should be. You know, so there's a lot of things that matter in life way more than hunting and whether you kill the, a big bull this year or not, you know. Uh, so it's different. It is different. I do enjoy, I still enjoy hunting, elk hunting for sure. But it's not like it was. I used to be, I really was a hard driver for a lot of years. I mean, I would, I would hunt really hard, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what people don't see that, of course, because you're out there by yourself and you, you know how it is. You go state to state and I'd always try to spend at least two weeks on each hunt. And I'd always figure I could hunt at least three hunts in six weeks <laughs> and this sounds familiar <laughs> yeah but and just pushing it you know i mean you're out there driving between hunts at night so you don't miss a day and you know i mean you do the same things you get it dude <laughs> it is a lonely path right and you sleep out along the highway wherever you are yep between stuff and you make sure that you're always where you want to be Never way miss before, a morning. way before anybody else is, and you're staying longer, and you know, you just try to do things. It doesn't always, you don't always have to work harder. Just working hard doesn't necessarily do it. Absolutely, you, you got to work. 
you got to work smart. You, being in the wrong place and working your butt off is not going to do you any good. And that's one thing that was kind of interesting for me to learn. If you hunt in great areas, you're going to have a lot easier time having great results than if you hunt in an area that's not great. Yeah. So not all hunting areas are created equal and it's, it doesn't even necessarily matter just about pressure. It's just, there's not always good elk in every area for whatever reason. I mean, the genetics and age and, you know, how everything's managed, it's not even always about who's hunting or what the exact pressure is at that moment. Right. It's overall year round, you know, so I don't know. It's hard to figure it all out, but as far as the drive and the motivation goes, that I've definitely seen that change. I have a harder time being as motivated. <laughs> well, it's still crazy to me. I saw your schedule on your all the drafts you've made, all the changes to the site, and there was a timestamp, and it's the time. I don't. Maybe I wasn't supposed to see that, but <laughs> oh, it's like, time stamped all over the place. You're yeah. constantly working on that, yeah. And you have the really nice gym set up for yourself, and I know you're consistent with your fitness. And you're a great dad and a great husband. So something's motivating you to oh, still, yeah. I mean, you're still crushing life in my opinion. There's ups and downs, but Dan, you're killing it, man. Oh, well, I appreciate that. No, I was, I was mostly meaning the hunt motivation. Yeah, <laughs> the hunting, I get it. And I think I, my, my days will come where I might lose a little bit of that fire that I have right now. I'm still pretty crazy about elk hunting, man. Like I probably... I'm guilty of maybe overvaluing it to a degree. You know yeah. what I mean? And I got to be I got to be honest, man. I I check myself on that stuff for sure yeah. because there's not one elk hunt that I would ever like even consider it to hold a candle to me as a husband first yeah. and foremost. Me as the dad, but yeah, you've done a great job. Your girls are getting older. All except for the little one. Well, she's getting older too, but we, our little surprise, Katie Jo, you know, she's eight still. Yeah, so she, I would love for her to meet Avery Ann. Yeah, they we need to do just, that. She, she's the one that kind of keeps us young. We, once in a while I look at my wife and I'm like, well, what do you think now that we're empty nesters? Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool that Karen was a triple crown winner. Um, what states does that equate to? You know, back then, the first one was in Bedford, Indiana, I believe. Uh, one was in Nelson, oh, Nelsonville, Ohio, I think. And the other one was in Pennsylvania, I believe. Yep. So that, I don't, I don't even know if the IBO Triple Crown is still in the same places. I think they probably are. Yeah. I still watch, I keep up with the, the guys on like the archery competition media, you know, they, they show the yeah i've actually found that to be awesome to yeah, watch yeah it's fun i because i shot a lot of the guys well now the guys that i shot with are in the senior class yep and and the commentators you know darren christenberry yep he was a good friend of mine in fact the last year that we shot um we were both in semi-pro and we both shot within two points of each other at every leg of the triple crown last that last one and I don't even remember what we placed or anything, but I just remember that detail. And Nathan Brooks, you know, he's another one that I remember meeting him for the first time down at a shoot in Texas. And a lot of those guys, some of the guys that are the top pros now, of course, were like Levi Morgan. They were shooting in the youth class yeah. then, you know. <laughs> That's crazy to think. 
I uh, I appreciate that you let us come down here today, guys. We came down and filmed a full YouTube video today. Got to tour everything and got yeah. to go see your ranch. Wow. I love <laughs> where you live. I love that it's off-grid, man. Like, my biggest yeah. complaint is my connectivity to the Wi-Fi. Yeah. I... That's why September's freedom to me, man. Like, I literally don't have service. I live on the inReach, and that's just a message every once in a while to my wife. Yeah. To let her know I'm thinking about her. But um, you're doing it right, brother. And then, guys, listen, Canyon Pounder. This is a bougie site. This is the site for people that want to step up their game and they want to have options. And I would encourage you to support my friend Dan Evans and his business because Dan Evans, this is direct-to-consumer. You're not getting margined. To death, you guys. Um, there are a few dealers. Oh yeah, we do. We do sell through pro shops. We just don't allow online retail through pro, pro shops or third parties. So if you're in a place where your local pro shop is carrying our products, by go all means, go buy them there. But if you're not and you want to order online, then you order direct through us. And the and, cool thing is they can get a hold of you, which yeah. is nuts. I don't even know if I want to advertise that, but you're the guy that answers every message coming through and it's questions. A, it's a lifestyle, but I don't mind doing it. It's, it's something that sets us apart. Um, so I'm the one that does our social media for myself, and I try to answer all the messages, and then anybody can email me direct at dan at optionarchery.com. And my brother, my youngest brother, David, works with me full time. So he's another guy that you may talk to if you call the office. And then we have a good staff here. And everybody here is knowledgeable. I mean, our main girl that also answers phones, her name's Emily. And she's very knowledgeable, too. She can answer most of your tech calls herself. Um, I try to, we have a small crew. And pretty much everybody knows what they're talking about. And. That is a big, I think it's a big bonus. But if you want to talk to me direct, you can always do that too. Six years, guys. It took me to get Dan to come on today. This is a big deal to me. Give him a follow. I'll leave links to all his things. He's a mountain of a man, but he's a giant teddy bear, and I love him to death. You guys, separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. Thank you. You did it, dude. <laughs> you podcasted yeah, with me. This is real. This is real. Hope you guys enjoyed that. That was um, that was a really fun day. You have to watch the YouTube video. It's going to be incredible. We'll be on the lookout for that. And if you are serious about looking for what I think is the best site on the market at the moment, it's the Canyon Pounder. There's just too many good details for elk hunters, especially. I would strongly consider giving it a look. Also, we are stoked to partner with TrueMedic. This is an awesome backcountry med kit. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes. Discount code Elkshape will take 10% off. I would look at maybe getting in their mini, put it at the bottom of your pack, let your hunting partner know where that's located. Maybe buy two, give it to your hunting partner, know where they stow it, and be healthy, safe. It covers your tourniquet, all your bandages and splints, everything you need so that you can mitigate any trauma in the backcountry. Guys, you have a lot of options when it comes to podcasts. Thanks for choosing ours. Separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one.